The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Karen Tay, Smart Nation Director for the Prime Minister's Office of Singapore, whose mission is to transform Singapore into the world's leading smart nation and a hub for global technology talent. She's also the Vice President of the Singaporean Economic Development Board. She's held a number of roles and led many cross-functional government initiatives, working with data scientists, policymakers, and ground operations to deliver data-driven policies and strategic communications in Singapore. These variety of roles, from education to social financing to strategy in the Prime Minister's office, have helped her contribute towards her vision of a more equitable, sustainable society built on trust, relationships, and technology. In short, Karen is modernizing government, using product development thinking and applying it to policy development. She's changing the way the Singaporean government creates, designs, and deploys policy, and truly co-creating with its customers, its citizens. But this is by no means a direct path for the roles that she does today. She started small and started early, but many of her friends in college thought she was taking the wrong path, but not Karen. Customer development, finding the data in the field, was what she knew she wanted to do to learn, to unlearn how to apply policy and do it right. Even when I was in the Ministry of Finance, my first job, and we were looking at special education policies, and I thought, I really need to go down and understand what the parent is thinking, a parent of a special needs child is thinking, and what the cost pressures are like on their household. I just said, okay, one afternoon, I know I might stay up late that night to do the rest of my work, but one afternoon, I'm going to just go to a special education school, talk to the principals, teachers, and the parents, and just walk with them as they go into the classroom and leave the school. And that was my small thing. I was working till 2 a.m., 3 a.m., most nights in that job. But that small thing gave me so much energy and mission to do the right thing from the policy perspective or to, not the right thing, but take the right approach to this problem. Building an inclusive society was always part of her mission. She experimented, seeking personal and policy growth. And by taking a different approach, Getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, she could bring the government with her along the way. When I was about at the four-year mark of my job, the Prime Minister's office was setting up a new team called the Strategy Group. That was a team set up to really coordinate the whole of government to set priorities for Singapore, right? The way that governments are structured is usually what we call silos. The Education Ministry optimizes for one set of outcomes. The healthcare ministry optimizes for another set of outcomes. And sometimes it just doesn't work out and a lot of things come up to the prime minister. We were set up to help him prioritize, give him strategic advice on what should be the cabinet priorities. And that's how I really ended up there. I ended up there because I had deep expertise in my sector, the social sector, the education sector, as well as how you build an inclusive society. I did that job for one year and then my husband decided to do his PhD at Stanford. So then the conversation began, will Karen stay or will Karen leave, go to Silicon Valley and work for big tech? I thought about that decision really hard. 
And at the time, my manager said, hey, actually, in the Smart Nation office, in the Prime Minister's office, also in the Prime Minister's office, but another team has been thinking about sending someone out there for several reasons. One of them is talent. A lot of overseas Singaporean tech talent live in this area because Singaporeans are extremely well-educated. So oh, I know, yeah. Huge demand, right? Yeah. So talent is one piece. Partnerships is another piece, right? Smart Nation Singapore is really part of our national kind of identity as well. You know, what people know Singapore for. One of them is that we can use technology for public good. We're the rare place. One of the rare places we can do that. Partnerships as well as the whole marketing and expanding the international name of Singapore. So no one had done this job before. And I was honestly, I didn't know what to think about it. But we came down to this decision. You go there for six months. And you see how it goes. And if it doesn't work out for you guys, it doesn't work out for us, then let's end it. You can do whatever you want, but give it a shot. And that's how I landed doing this job for six months in the Silicon Valley in 2016. What I love about your story though here is you've obviously working in a very interesting field. Mm -hmm. I think politics or policy development is probably quite alien to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, yet I often find with policy, it, sometimes it's a bit like a product. Right? Like you have to formulate it, you have to do research, you have to understand the customers of that policy and how it might operate. Then you have a hypothesis about what that policy might work like. Then you've got to actually get support for it and then bring it to market. And hopefully if the policy is executed well, the people who are customers of that policy will benefit. So how do you build confidence when you're designing these policies? Because I know... You've talked about some you've done previously. I know you're constantly working on these. Mm -hmm. What's the way that you start to test your hypothesis of these policies? What's the way you start to learn what's going to work and what doesn't? You're absolutely right that policies, as well as events and anything you do, you should take a product lens to it. It's not just, I think this is a great idea and therefore I'm going to do it, right? There is a sense of needing to understand the stakeholders, your users, right? Why aren't low-income families sending their children to preschool? Is it because there's nothing in a 100-meter radius of them and they don't actually have access to the necessary transport needs? I'm just giving you an example, right? Maybe low-income families, really for them, the closeness to the proximity to their house of a, a childcare center is really important. Or maybe it is that they can't afford it. The prices are too expensive, the subsidies are inefficient. You have to start with that first to understand why is it that the target group is not getting the service that you need. And then you can start designing your policy. Then you can start thinking, all right, a planning parameter for several estates where we have lots of our target group, low-income families, is that you need to have a center within 100 to 200 meters of their home. Okay, maybe slightly more, but something that is walking distance, somewhere where they can drop their child off on the way to school. And you know what? We found out that Maybe in catering for that, the tail of the distribution curve, most families actually want that. Right? Most families don't want to be making huge diversions on their way to work. So that also caters to the rest of the population. So certainly there is that point of getting to know your users. I think the interesting thing about government is that users are not the only stakeholders, right? You don't run a country based on what everybody wants because not everybody, people have wildly different views on how they want to have their lives. And that is perfectly normal, right? There is a sense that you need some leadership in deciding what it should be, right? So the decision that preschool is important 
investing in the early years, having everybody go to quality preschool, equalizing the excess there, that is something that the central government has to make and say, we believe that we are willing to invest in it for the sake of our people and for the sake of our nation's future. So that is a part that is not necessarily just driven by the users. How we do it, of course, is driven by user behavior and you would be dumb not to do it. I would say that traditionally governments are not super great at the iterative process, right? And some policies don't lend themselves to it. For example, you can't be changing your interest rates right? <laughs> every one day based on what people say. Like You can't do that, right? But generally, we can afford to move towards a lot more iteration. I'll give you an example. And this is something I feel strongly about because when I went to the Ministry of Education, note that I came from the Ministry of Finance where I launched a lot of preschool reform, right? And then I went to the Ministry of Education to implement some of the things I was planning for. And not just this policy, but on a myriad of other policies that I did not work on, we found that teachers, principals were not actually liking what we're doing. And if we launch something, soon even teachers and principals would be critiquing us on social media or word of mouth. That's their feedback mechanism. Right? This is post-fact, right? They are telling us post-fact, we've launched everything, nice press release has gone out, we think it's a great thing, but ooh, people think that it's too fast. People think that's the wrong move. And this was happening again and again. And so what I put my hand up for in the Ministry of Education was like, hey, please let me set up a new team within the communications department focusing on what we call strategic communications and engagement. And really, that's where we combine user research, iterative testing for our policies. For example, we were doing this huge review of our assessment policy in Singapore. At 12, everybody takes this huge exam. It's the biggest thing to everybody. We were doing a big review and it's like, let's not just surprise everybody with what we're doing. We need to bring in parents and teachers and principals over a period of one year to help us design it down to how many bands we should have in the system. What would be the operational challenges for the schools? How will we communicate this? We tested everything from the actual policy design to all the communications methods. And so when it came out, actually, it was no surprise. Most of the education community had heard about it, had given their comments. Even if they didn't agree, they had their voices heard. And so this was a function that I started for the Ministry of Education. Again, what's super interesting about mm -hmm. this is almost using this customer development approach to policy which I think people who build products might be familiar with, but it's a very interesting lens to put on the way you work, like reaching out to your customers, be them uh, citizens of the country, understanding that you've got to work with different stakeholders that might have competing priority, even within the government, different parties might have different beliefs and things that they're willing to back. And But this approach of like building your policy with teachers, having them involved where they feel like they're contributing to it, Therefore, they have a sense of ownership to it. Therefore, these policies aren't a surprise to them. If anything, they're just seeing them rolled out based on their feedback, which they're only going to have more support for them. I think that's a very innovative type approach to doing this work. What do you think has allowed you and potentially the Singaporean government to sort of take this approach, even now when you are here now in your next role, you're actively understanding that you need to broaden the talent pool, both externally from Singapore and to encourage people to come back. You're seeing technology as a key enabler to help the country grow and creating a center of technology in, in the region. And I think a lot of these policies and approaches are Singapore's stance is actually probably the envy for many countries as to why they're so behind technology, how they see it as such a huge part of the growth of the country. 
What are some of the things that are allowing that to happen? What do you think are some of the unique aspects, especially of the Singaporean government and the teams that you're on that are helping you get there? Yeah, I think there are two sides to this. One of them is leadership because not everything should be driven by popular. Absolutely, right. right. So you do need a sense of, well, we are going to take this direction. Like, for example, what I gave you in the education example, but for technology, it's really been that call, right? What's going to make Singapore exceptional in the next 50 years? The way that we can use technology to completely redesign the way we think about city life and we think about how government relates to citizens, how citizens can relate to each other. What's that potential, right? And so even that, the smart nation drive was an act of leadership, right? Absolutely, we couldn't. Yeah. No country has done a lot of what we have done, but we were like, we think that this is going to be our future and we invested there, right? So there is that part. I think actually Singapore, if you look at our history, we have a history of strong leadership in terms of visionary, where we should be heading. Well, people argue with whether it's right or wrong and I think that debate is coming up more and more and it's a good thing, right? Even with internally within the government, some of us don't agree and we, we discuss it, we argue. But what the muscle that the government has had to grow is really the user-facing muscle, right? Okay, you want to do this. Are you going to drag people kicking and screaming through the door? (laughs) Or are they going to come and say like, hey, and we want to do this. We might do it differently from how you said it, but working with us, even though it might be a little bit more complex, it may take longer, it's going to be worth it for the country, right? And that's the muscle that we've had to develop a lot in the last, even in the last 10 years, I've seen huge changes in how the government does that. So in my current role, which you asked about, you know, the mandate was, Karen, bring technology talent back because we need technology talent to staff up our ranks, right? And I told them, no, you know, I do not want to do the job if you want to make me a recruiter. I see Singapore and you are a product. Do the tech talent here want to buy you? No, they don't want to. And why? Let's look at our competitors, right? Let's look at what they're saying about what they want in a role, how they think about work. All the things that you're offering compared to themselves, what they want and what they are having from their competitors is not attractive enough. So before we even go there, before we even go into KPIs and let's bring back X number of people, let's look at ourselves. Let's take what they say about our product and change our product to something that's attractive. That's such a good point. Yeah. And it's such a pattern though. It's jump to the solution. The solution is bring tech talent back and people get fixated on that. And I think what I really enjoy about what you're saying is you're actually getting people to pause and say, well, hang on, that's a solution. Let's start looking at what our real problem is. Let's start to understand and do research and customer development really to understand it as a product, Singapore as a product. You know, what are our strengths? What are our weaknesses relative to the market? Or what are people who we want to be maybe part of our system? What do they feel is lacking? What's missing? What can we enhance And then you're using all that information again to frame your problem, then look at outcomes and start to look at policies or essentially experiments to start to improve that, which is fascinating to me, like to see that method in play, especially in policy development. What have been some of the interesting sort of learnings or maybe counterintuitive things that you've discovered by going through that process? Any notions that you were like, oh, this is definitely going to work. And then yet when you started to immerse yourself in it, you saw maybe it was the opposite. Maybe I'll comment on your response first. Yeah, it's sure. really interesting because I said no, but I said no very nicely. It's not like, oh, no, no, I'm not going to recruit a single person. I did some of that, but the bulk of my effort, I spent really trying to understand the user in the first six months, right? 
I did almost a hundred interviews with people. We put it into something that was super condensed and we had archetypes, users, and basically all the way down to strategy and execution and what we thought needed to be done first. And so it was almost like coming in as an external consultant to the government being like, hey, look, you want to do this? Yes, you want to bring them in? It's not just about bringing them in. It's about keeping them and having a good reputation as a good employer. So now what are we going to do, right? And giving them an actual breakdown of, okay, this is exactly what we want to do. This is what you do. This is what I do. In six months' time, let's review it again if we've really improved, right? So that is the what people do need to understand in government. It's all about anything. It's all about whether you can execute it, not about what great idea you have um, or even about what that you're directionally right. It's whether you can get it done. So you asked me about what was intuitive or not intuitive. Let me think about it. Well, what surprised me, for example, was how little I needed to get something done or get a prototype up and running. And for the first six months of my job, when we were still in that testing phase, I was really alone. There was no one out here. Even when I came out here, there are other Singaporean entities in the Bay Area. They were not quite sure what to make of me. They were like, are you going to just overlap with what we do? You know, there's not very much trust, right? (laughs) Yeah. There is that sense. Who are you? What are you up to? Can we trust you? And instead of really worrying about that, I was like, wait, what is kind of MVP I can deliver to bring people in to show my other partners that I can bring value? And it doesn't take that much work. So... I remember I ran a women in tech event for Singaporean women in tech. Somebody once told me, oh, there are no Singaporean women in tech in the Bay Area. They're all accompanying spouses. And I was like, there is no way. Singaporean women are some of the most educated. And I was a science student. Tons of women are science students in Singapore. There's not much of that divide. So I said, well, let's just make a women's only event, right? Let's test if that will bring more women out. I put it out and we were like oversubscribed by three times, right? We thought that 10 women would come, but like 80 people signed up. That was really surprising to me for one. But when I talked to them, they told me, you know, most of us have children. So if you ask us to come out on a weeknight for a mixer where we're not so sure we get value, but we really value our cho- spending time with our children, you know, we'll just ask our husbands to go alone. But if you make it women's only, we will come because it's about us. It's more about us. It's more specific to us. Well, yeah. what's really, again, awesome what you're doing here is you're really starting to design around your potential customer again. Mm-hmm. You know, like understanding where people are at. And what's even better is debunking people's assumptions. These yeah. classic assumptions like there's not Singaporean women here in tech. That's not possible. Well, let's test it and find out. Or And even better, like let's create the circumstances where that customer can be found, right? People have families in in evening. I always say like, you know, if you want to spend time with people, meet them for lunch rather than meet them for dinner, Mm -hmm. because that's time that they may have to themselves. Dinner time, like I want to spend time with my family. I don't know who you want to spend, right? So I think starting to design around your customer to really create uh, circumstances, not only to find them, but for where you can get the best out of them whether it's a women-only event, where it's a person of color event, where it's minorities, where it's somebody who cares about a discipline, whatever it is, I think too often we fall into this classic behavior of, oh, we'll just do a meetup at six o'clock during the week and everyone's going to eat pizza because that's what everybody likes. Yeah. You know, and, and again, that 
doesn't open up the doors yeah. and it's not thoughtful design, I would argue. Yeah, you need to make them comfortable with their ad. I would build on that because a couple of months later when Facebook saw that I was doing this women in tech thing, Facebook Singapore, which is also hiring in Singapore, they said, hey, can we do something together? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. Six to eight weeks, let's launch an event. The first Singapore Tech Forum was born. We had 300 spots. I thought, again, 300 is a stretch, but 700 people signed up. And I took what I learned from the women in tech event. I figured, well, we want both the women and men to come. It's a weekend, Saturday, because it was a four or five hour program. Then I need a kid's room because if not, one spouse will get left at home. And it's usually the women. So I actually told Facebook, let's have a kid's room. My coworkers brought toys. There was a live stream. And yeah, the women participation was like much higher than any other kind of event, a mixed gender event that we had before. And that was something that I personally was proud of because I felt you understand your customer, right? You want to bring them and you want to make them feel that you thought about them when you design the product. It's not just about whether it serves their needs, but how it makes them feel. And that I think is very much in line with with product development. Yeah, and obviously the results are there to see. You know, the the kind of outcomes you're achieving are four or five X better than anybody else. And that's just because you're being thoughtful about it. It's really interesting. So now that you were here for a while, right, you've been in this role for a number of years. It's amazing that <laughs> I was always inspired when I met you, like your the way you go about your work. But the amount of people that you've reached out to, the network you've built has been quite amazing in the period of time you've been here. So what have been some of the moments for you along the way, the real turning points in your thinking? Because I love this notion you talk about, like you live and learn in these sort of six month cycles all the time, which I think is a really interesting notion. You know, what have been some of the changes or course corrections you've made in your sort of cycles? Yeah, you mentioned living in six month cycles. That's something that I learned by moving out to San Francisco. When I first moved out here, the job was six months. So am I going to keep it after six months? No idea. And that really trained me to think like, okay, is there a product market fit here between the audience, for example, the tech talent and Singapore? Is there hope that we are going to move to, if there's none now, is there hope that we're going to move towards it? If not, this job is not worth doing, right? Yeah. Or is there a market fit between me and the organization? Because they are taking a chance, sending someone in a different time zone to achieve an objective they have no idea how to achieve. Is there still the trust? Is there still that sense that both of us are willing to work together? And every six months, I ask myself that, you know? And, yeah, yeah, and, you yeah. Know, it does seem that every six months, the answer is yes. And my job keeps growing. Right now, I have two full-time jobs. And I cover a global team spanning the UK, the East Coast, and the West Coast of the US, as well as Singapore. So That's a nice time zone change for you. Well I done. I know. I operate in four time zones. So I'm up at all hours. But it is very meaningful to see the approach I've taken to this work be accepted and expanded and being able to then grow other people to take the same approach. I think they're perfectly capable of executing this stuff well, but what is the difference in the approach that we go about doing our work? You know, what's the product-centered approach? What's the people-centered approach? As opposed to just, well, HQ says, headquarters says we should do this, so we shall do it because ground ops is just arms and legs. That is absolutely not the right way to think about it. That's absolutely not the user-centric way to think about it. Yeah, and again, the results are there to see. I think the impact you're having and what I've observed, not only elevating this message, but uh, the fact that you're bringing it to more and more people and they're starting to replicate it and you're building up your team and more people starting to use these patterns to be really successful. I think there's a lot for people to learn here about 
how you do start to build great policies, how you do start to take this product centric approach to policy development. And um, when we think about government agencies, this isn't naturally what jumps into people's minds, right? They're thinking big programs, multi-year programs, just execute it or get it done in my term. So I have a soundbite to talk about for my election or people have those sort of notions about what's happening in government, right? Uh, in many parts of the world, there's such a difference in terms of opposite ends of the spectrum and you just have sides arguing and many people feel like there's no progress in government. And yet I think what's unique here, what you're sharing is using this sort of product development, customer centric approach to how you're building your policies and how you're building awareness, not only of what the Singaporean government is looking to do, but just from your own work and connecting all these different entities. Um, I think that's really interesting and different um, and not intuitive to many people, though it might be to you. So, you know, what tips would you have for people who are sort of listening now going, this sounds like something I can apply. I don't have to be a government to apply this. Like companies have policy, whether it's trying to improve their diversity policy, whether it's trying to improve their home care policy, like to create an environment to attract better diversity in their companies. What are some of the tips you would have for people as they start to go down this path or maybe some of the examples or that yeah. you tried, that things that worked that you didn't expect? or Here I will use Barry's framework on unlearn, right? <laughs> so I'll focus on the thing I had to unlearn, mm. right? Which was that you need to know how this is going to scale right from the start. That's ridiculous, right? There is just the moment you go for that, you're emphasizing breadth over depth. And then that's a surefire way to like be far away from your users because you're just thinking, how can I hit all these people amazingly? And, you know, so I would say, Learning how to do the unscalable thing first. That is a very common advice for startup founders, but it's also very common. It should be common for anybody trying to do something new or create any change in your organization. So go deep first, right? You need to really get to know the people you're trying to serve. Even if you just serve one or two of them first, right? Or even a small group, like bringing the women in, in my case. Focus on building that relationship and that trust with the community. Everything else, like, the dividends come later. You will know, you know, each step of the way, you'll figure out if I respond to that need, if I do that, I will learn something about how I'm going to make it scale later on. And that's absolutely been my journey in the last three years. I was so uncomfortable with not being able to answer that how are you going to scale question or Karen, this is just, you know, only possible because of you. And I had no idea when people ask me that. But now I have managed to scale it beyond me. And it's not about me. It's about knowing the customer and responding systematically. I just think this is such a spot on the money insight and so counterintuitive to so many people. Like the fact of actually the way you create a scalable project is to descale it just feels at odds with what we're taught, right? We're government, big rollouts, our project, big rollout. We need to serve the whole market. We need to think of all these complexities, all these edge cases. And yet... As we see again and again, whether it's startups disrupting markets or they descale down to a very small market, a very small use case and start to actually learn from a small group of people, getting something simple working end to end with a small sample of people and learning what works and what doesn't and then starting to scale. You know, I see this so much in my own work when I'm trying to work with companies to help them transform the way they work. So many companies want me to come in with the, what's the magic blueprint? 
what do we need to roll out across the whole company? We need to train 10,000 people in this one method to be successful. What's the answer, Barry? And yet I have to constantly remind people that the way to scale innovation is actually to descale it, to start with a small group of people, like go very, very deep with a narrow focus and demonstrate new behaviors, show that what works and doesn't work in your context. I've never went to a company where the thing that worked exactly in one company worked exactly the same in the next and next and again. There's always tweaks mm -hmm. because cultures and companies are different because challenges they're facing are sometimes a little unique. Mm -hmm. And yet when you see these massive methodology rollouts, it's a one size fits all approach to complex systems and just trying to copy and paste transformation. And I see executives do it everywhere they go. I, oh, I was an exec in a bank. Now I'm going to be in an airline and I'm just going to copy and paste all the same methods I use and expect to be successful. And that creates activity, but it doesn't create outcomes. Yeah. So I think sometimes we just substitute activity for outcomes. And absolutely. You know, and this is like such a huge pity. It is, right? And it's a huge problem in our industry. Again, what I really enjoy about what you're sharing here in your context is this notion of descaling, like finding out exactly what those first few customers need and really understanding their problems and designing a solution for them. And, and as you start to get that flywheel going, then start to push it out and scale it and bring more people into it and open up your sample size and this is the way to be successful. Yet again, it seems to be continuously counterintuitive for people. Can I they add one scale. more thing here? Please, yeah, absolutely. I think one more thing that governments, you know, perhaps I had to unlearn this as well. The difference between like being fundamentally transactional and fundamentally relational. I think I'm not sure about the cultural, historical origins of this, but sometimes in every single interaction we have, we want to get something out of it, right? When you go into a relationship like that, that's a one-off relationship. They're never going to come back. Oh, it's a zero-sum game as well. What I learned about building talent communities and talent pipeline is it's absolutely relational. You cannot be wanting to sell them something from the start or get something out of them from the start. It has to be, well, who are you as a person? Like, What do you care about? What do we have in common here that we might not have realized? Like, Let's get to know each other. And magic happens when that kind of conversation happens as opposed to, oh, why are you in this job? Why don't you want to come to Singapore? Right? No. And I think that is a lot of what my team on the ground, we share back with headquarters because it's a fundamentally relational way of working that I think more people in the world will benefit from. Right? Not to say that we're just like woo-woo, fluffy, we don't care about outcomes, but that's precisely the way you achieve outcomes by connecting at the very human level. And when you talk about CEOs coming from industry or how do you train people, it's not really about hard things. It's about whether they feel inspired and they feel like they want to make this change, whether they have that emotional connection with the change you're trying to make. If they don't have that, then like tough luck on you, right? You're just going to be hearing a lot of nice assent with no outcomes. Oh, yeah. And I see this time and time again. And it's funny, one of the other people I had on the podcast was Stephen Orban. He's now the head of enterprise strategy for AWS, but used to be the CIO of the Dow Jones. And he taught, shared his story about trying to transform this classic paper to this digital entity. Mm -hmm. And so, so much of the work there was them like sharing stories about how every single person was trying to change him, trying to role model change in himself. 
what he was trying to do differently to help the teams grow. Mm -hmm. And again, I just see that again and again in the companies and the countries, obviously, that are transforming is when the leadership are really role modeling new behavior, where they're the ones that are sort of getting a little outside their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Like it's easy to tell people what to do. It's hard to like find out what people want and then adapt your behavior to help them get there. You know, that's tough, whether you're a CEO, whether you're in a prime minister of a of country. So I think there's a lot to be said about these entities that are adaptive, that are using the information that they gather from their customers and their people, to their citizens, to what people like yourself are out learning in the field, and then feeding that information truly into their policies or their products or their approach and adapting to it. Mm -hmm. And I think invariably they're going to be the countries or the companies or the leaders that actually succeed as opposed to these groups that maybe think they know it all or are going to force doctrine. Absolutely. And I think that is Singapore government was extremely adaptive when we realized that we're not great at that. So let's do it. Even the genesis of Smart Nation and the first core group of engineers and data scientists we managed to attract, they were the ones who went around. It was a small group, eight, I think. They went around evangelizing this new way that you could do your work if you just made use of that data sitting in your troves. And people got so excited and became a movement, right? Everybody wanted to do that. And that's how transformation happens. Not by just someone saying, everyone, smart nation, go, right? <laughs> so. so looking ahead now, mm -hmm. I think it's very exciting time in that whole region. Mm -hmm. And you're here like sort of at the forefront of both taking lessons that you see of things that have worked or not worked mm -hmm. and also bringing that back and starting to apply it. So what are you most excited about in the time ahead and what are some of the areas that are curious to you? Yeah, so I sit at this intersection of US and Asian culture. I have networks on both sides, you know, really deep connections on both sides. But also I sit at this nexus of engineering culture versus hierarchical kind of management culture. I wouldn't say that that's only applicable to Asia, right? This is a bigger kind of situation for big organizations. You start to start to operate a certain way to manage resources, to make sure that things move in a big org, right? And it's alive and well in North America. There's lots yeah. of top-down companies I work with. Right. Again, not right or wrong, right? But when you think about needing to attract technology talent in to transform the strategy of your business, what's possible, that strategic space. Technology used to be this like, downstream IT issue. It's far from there anymore. Everybody is saying, you know, technology is the main thing that's going to make us competitive. So how do we do it? Well, we need technology talent. Bad news, guys. Like the demand is so much more than the supply. Okay, so what changes do you need to make? And I'm speaking in general to Asian cultures or management cultures, big hierarchies, organizations that have done well with that existing structure. There is a sense in engineering culture that clashes strongly with management culture, right? Think about engineers. I've met and spoken to thousands of them over the years. One component is huge emphasis on users, right? If you look in the Silicon Valley, it's all about how are users responding? Are they using more? What are they doing in response to our product? And making these quick iterations so that you keep engaging them, you keep hooking them, they come back, they're sticky, right? That is the fundamental principle, right? Users first. In a management culture, for example, a CEO might be comfortable saying, hey, you know, don't use that purple button, turn it to blue. Yeah. And in the management culture, the person on the ground will really do that because that is what he's supposed to do. Told, he's yeah. been told. 
that's absolutely runs against just simple trivial example. You know, it just shows you that absolutely runs against that you are not a super user. Our users tell us what is needed and we build our product based on that and results will show for themselves, right? Oh, this is so true. And I think it's one of the reasons why technology is such a differentiator here. The reason these companies are getting ahead is because they've built platforms to source feedback or mm-hmm, monitor absolutely. user behavior. So you've hundreds of thousands of users doing things. And if you're missing what they're looking for, you know about it and you can adapt. Where this notion of just one person having all the answers and suddenly being able to come up with all the answers, one person versus hundreds of thousands of users who are actually using the product. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not even a conversation. It would be unsensical to say, well, that one person's going to make the best decisions every time. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot Precisely. to be said here about yeah. not only whether you're building products and you're listening and observing what your customers are doing, but you're creating policy and you're sourcing that from your citizens, from the people who the policy is designed mm-hmm. for. I just think there's a huge difference about the people who are actually actively engaging their customers to design versus the people who are trying to control and push that down. Absolutely. Well, there is some space where you do have to make some central decisions, right? When we we build Smart Nation, it's not like everything is just what the users want. There is a sense like, okay, we need to have common infrastructure, digital infrastructure to save money, save taxpayers dollars. That is an executive decision, right? But there's that balance. There are tons of things where management does not really have to comment. They may give their opinion, but they acknowledge we are not the super users here. Tell us what the users say, we will just follow. Not going to comment on areas that are not our expertise. Which, again, leads me to my second point, which is the engineering culture really values mastery and expertise. And in more kind of management cultures, that's not really valued, right? What do you do when you only the ground staff do the hands-on work? And as you go higher, you don't really do the hands-on work anymore. You don't manage cases or see tickets or even a code anymore, right? You just become a manager, you manage resources, you manage your peers, you manage upwards. That's absolutely not engineering culture. In the valley, you see as even as engineering managers go up the ranks, they remain very hands-on. And that is what engineers want, right? Well, one of my favorite stories I maybe you've told before in the podcast is when the head of trading for HSBC used to sit down with the graduates every year where they came in to the program and he would give them problems that he's working on so he could see how those graduates would tackle that problem. Mm-hmm. It, you can imagine in these big corporate organizations, bureaucracy, where you've one of the most senior people in the company sitting with the most junior people, asking them how to solve problems that he's working on. He would learn massively like new techniques, new tools, new ways of technologies to solve problems. And culturally, it's a huge statement for the company too yeah. as well. But I don't know it all. I'm, I'm here to both learn and unlearn and relearn. I think there's a lot to be said about trying to always keep close to your customers, the leadership teams to constantly spend time with their customers, whether it's weekly, biweekly, whatever it is for them, the people who stay close to how the work is being done so they understand it. I think there's a Absolutely. lot to be said for that. And, and I do think it's one step further for engineering culture, which is not just knowing what the customers are saying, but even if you are like 10 years into this, like, you know, you manage huge teams, you still should be able to know how to do it or at least know enough to guide your team properly, to do it well, like a technological standpoint. And that's something that is sorely lacking in most kind of management or hierarchical cultures where when you rise, you just lose your kind of, actual hands-on experience. I hear you. It resonates quite a lot. 
Well, look, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Speak to you for hours. It's been so much fun. Any thoughts or parting words then for the listeners before we go? I think if there's one thing that I've learned in the last few years is that we're absolutely in what I call an experience economy. I think people have used this term before, but the idea that people want to have that relationship, they want to feel valued. It's not about giving them the best information in their heads, but do they feel that your organization and you value and have thought of them, right? Do they feel like you advocate for them? And when it comes to talent, community building and talent attraction, I want to tell companies that any company leaders sitting here is that it's absolutely about the experience. Every single interaction they have with you, from what they see online to your your employees who talk about you to the behaviors of your recruitment people, whether they are very hierarchical or kind of stuck in old ways, that communicates what kind of experience they're going to have when they join your company. So fundamentally, everybody is your experience ambassador for your company these days. And that is a different paradigm to recruiting and attracting talent. And I would say, I'll take it one step further, and I would say, if you want to expect all your employees to be your ambassadors for how great an employer you are, then you have to treat them well and give them an amazing experience in your company. And that really necessitates how you think about structuring your organization, the practices, the work-life integration, you know, support for parents, how you treat them with that empathy, right? Well, what I really enjoy about what you're talking about here is thoughtfulness and thoughtfulness about their policies in many ways. Mm -hmm. How do they design an environment where their people can succeed and feel valued and representative and ultimately can contribute to their work. Yeah. You know, I think when you're in those types of companies, I've been lucky to be in one of them, I think, where it was a huge representation of not only my, yeah, ThoughtWorks, mm-hmm. yeah, where it was a great representation, not only of my values, but everybody I worked there with really shared the same values of social and economic justice, technology excellence, and then running a sustainable business. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is like 10 years ago. and mm-hmm. There was something very unique about that system Um, and every experience of the people you worked there was very special because we had a real shared sense of purpose and values. Mm -hmm. Um, And you naturally became ambassadors and recruiters for the company without even trying. Well, it's one of these things, you know, and I think externally people saw that about the company as well. And that was a very unique experience for me. I don't often see that in many companies. And I'm sure it's different there today than it was when I was there. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a lot to be said about the flywheel that creates for not only attracting, but retaining amazing talent. And I can say the people I worked with at that company were some of the best and brightest I've ever had the pleasure. And I really liked spending time with them all. So, you know, again, that's what we all want at a workplace, right? Right. Our test was we'd go for a beer with nine out of 10 people who worked there. And that was a real i've never had a metric that would even get close to that in other companies so real fun so thank you very much again for sharing all your great insights it's been super inspiring very interesting to see the work you're doing i'm obviously going to be excited to see what you do next and yeah thank you very much for your Thanks, time on Barry. the show yeah wicked <laughs>